morning. Isn't it great to bless the name of the Lord together? And just to be together and uh, the sense of unity that we have when we're all worshiping the same God. It's, it's an incredible time. I would like to encourage you uh, to, pretty soon we'll be starting our connection groups. And while this is an awesome time where we can all come together and worship God together, we don't focus on each other, we, we don't focus on ourselves, we focus on God. But there's also a time for fellowship too, and a time to, to get to know each other, meet each other's needs, and there's a real sense of community that comes. If, if, uh, if you're looking for that, then a Connection Group is going to be a great place for you for that. Uh, tonight, we're actually meeting with some of the small group leaders. If there are any others that are interested in being a small group leader or helping out, maybe using your house as a, as a home uh, where we could meet, come talk to me so we know how much pizza to order for tonight. But uh, at 4 o'clock, we're going to meet and start uh, talking through this ministry together. But I'm excited about that because church isn't just what we do here. It's from Monday through Saturday as well. Amen? And so it's a time for us to get into each other's lives and really put church in, into, uh, into action. All right, well, let's, uh, let's turn into our, in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 2 as we continue our journey with Joshua. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about the fear of man and the fear of God. We've talked about how the fear of man has become an obstacle to the fear of God. But when we fear God, then that fear of man tends to dissipate and it disappears. Uh, today, we're going to continue the story of Rahab, but we're not, we're going to focus on the part of the story. It's probably my favorite part of this story is the scarlet cord. So the title for today's message is the scarlet cord. And to begin today, I'd like to just read uh, the entire passage that we're going to talk through today. So let's uh, look uh, at Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house, and give me a true token, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. Just a a reminder here, this is Rahab talking to the spies. She's already explained to them why she uh, sided with them, and and the answer was that she feared the Lord more than fearing the people of, of Jericho. And now she's asking for something, something special from them. Verse 14, let's continue. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Go to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go on your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless, when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in this house, his blood shall be on uh, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you, if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. 
So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all of the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. What a difference between this spy account and the first spy account. Amen? You see some things that didn't change. There are still giants in the land. There are fortified cities. There are trained soldiers. All of those things. None of that changed. What changed? Their understanding of who God was. They feared the Lord, and they, they no longer feared men, even if they're giants. I just think that's an, it's an amazing thing to look at, to see how that happened. But we also see some themes coming in this passage that we see a few times earlier in Scripture, multiple times after this in Scripture. And, and really what we find is that uh, the Scriptures are oftentimes like a, like a finely woven tapestry where there's, there are threads of, of a theme that comes in a thread that will show itself and then it'll pop away and then it'll show itself up again and, and pop away. And, and by the time you, you, with time, you start to see a picture taking place as this tapestry comes together. And today we begin to see that a thread a scarlet thread, if you will, that, that we find all through Scripture. And this really ties into the overall theme of what the Bible is really all about. If we, uh, if we look, actually, all, all the way back into Genesis chapter 3, the, the story of Adam and Eve, and you know the story, and they were told not to eat of uh, the forbidden fruit, and they did. They sinned. Sin entered the world for the first time. And immediately, what did God have to do? He went and he killed some an animal to use the skin to cover up for their sinfulness. And so we begin to see this, this, this idea, this concept of a blood sacrifice, or a scarlet sacrifice, you could say, where there's a covering for our sin that, we, that needs to happen, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And, uh, and so we begin to see that theme. If we, we skip ahead in uh, one book, uh, and there are more examples than these. I'm just going to share a few of them so we can see where this thread that comes into today's text is, is, plays out through the biblical history. But if we come uh, to, to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 12, we find the first Passover. And remember the story of the first Passover where, where uh, uh, the firstborn of all of the people in the land of Egypt, that included the Israelites at this time, the firstborn of every household, was scheduled to die as the last plague of, of Egypt. And so uh, this was taking place, but there was a way to escape it. And the way to do it was simply to obey what God said. And he said you'd have to put the blood um, of a spotless lamb where? On the tops and on the sides of the doorposts. So every house had to be marked with blood. And then what happened when the angel of death came? And one night he would go from house to house and he wiped out the firstborn's Throughout the land, except the firstborns who were inside a home marked with blood. And we, we begin to see a new picture here, and, uh, really the same picture, but developing more in this finely woven tapestry of the scripture. We find again the concept of a blood sacrifice, but now we also find this concept that, that we also uh, have to trust in that sacrifice. Because some would say, well, I don't believe Moses, I don't believe in the Lord, I don't believe in Yahweh, we follow the gods of Egypt, and, and they don't put blood on their doors, then what happens? They do not escape the destruction that was scheduled for them. They, it doesn't happen. And so we see this 
image beginning to take place. By the time we come to Joshua chapter 2 then, and we have the story of the scarlet cord, again, we find the same concept, that there's this, uh, this concept of a scarlet sacrifice. We also see the importance of trusting in that sacrifice. And then what we're going to find is that we're going to see the power of salvation directly applied to the God fear. And we start putting these things together. And what's happening? We're, this is developing an image of what salvation is really all about. Does it not? And we begin to see this concept um, taking place. I think something that's kind of interesting, keep your finger here in Joshua chapter 2, but if you can flip a few pages ahead to Joshua chapter 5, verse 10, and we find that this is the night that we're getting ready to cross in over the Jordan, and, and, uh, and we'll find the Battle of Jericho uh, coming soon. But if you find the date, I think it's kind of interesting. In chapter 5, verse 10, it says, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. That might seem just like a, a trivial piece of information, but it's just in case you didn't catch the idea of what the scarlet cord represents, God made sure that it happened when? On the exact same day that they were celebrating Passover. Spies knew the date, they knew what was coming up, and uh, they realized, hey, we're, we're going to be uh, coming in here, and guess what? They, they still have the price. Marking their homes with scarlet, marking their homes with red. And, he's, and they, so they used the same thing that they had learned all the way from the, from the stories that they had heard of the first Passover. And they said to, to Rahab, you have to have a scarlet cord marking your home. And so they, they began to catch that idea. So this is happening on the Passover. And so, uh, but I want to, to see how all of this leads to one very important event. If we were to fast forward all the way to the New Testament... And that's the, the scarlet robe. In Matthew 27, uh, 27 through 31, you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll put it up on the screen. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they, they bowed his, the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. What we need to understand is this the story that we're talking about today, the, with the scarlet cord, is part of a narrative that, that goes from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. And, and that what we find is that all of those really lead to that one. And we see the culmination of all of these where? the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so I don't want you to miss that as we read this. It is an Old Testament story, but it's pointing to the New Testament. It's pointing to the fact that there is a sacrifice for our sins, and, and there has to be blood sacrifice for our sins, but that happens in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the one who died to pay for our sins. So really, even though this is an Old Testament story, this is a story about salvation, is it not? So what do we learn about salvation from this story? There are several things that we, that we learn. I'm going to point out uh, three of them. Um, but I, but to, to begin to ask that question, I want us to take a, a closer look at what Rahab actually asked for. So let's, uh, let's take a look at what Rahab asked for in verses 12 and 13. So let's go back to Joshua chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father and my mother 
my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So what was Rahab asking for at this point? Exactly. She was asking really to be spared from the coming judgment, the coming destruction. She knew what the Lord was doing. She knew this was the promised land. She knew to whom the land belonged. And she was saying, can you please spare me? But not just me. Who else was she asking for? Yeah, she, she was asking the same thing for her family. She's saying, could you please spare my entire family? Um, and so really, when we think about it, salvation is asking God to spare us from something that we deserve, is it not? We're asking God to spare us from the coming dis- destruction, and we're asking for something that we don't really deserve. There was one problem with her petition. One thing that she asked uh, that, that wasn't quite, doesn't quite mesh with a lot of the things we know from Scripture. And so uh, when we think about it, what was the problem in her petition? It's a little bit tougher to see. You have to kind of look at the verse again. But what we find is that she based this whole thing on the, what we call the theory of reciprocation. What, what does reciprocation mean? I give you something and you give me something back. Or you did something for me, so I do something for you. It's this theory of, of uh, reciprocation. And in fact, let's look at how she did that back in verse 12 again. It says, Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house. Do you see what's going on here? She's like, because of my works, because of what I did, now I'm asking that you give something to me. Because I have saved your lives. And she did save their lives. In fact, uh, some of the little things that we might not catch when we're reading the text quickly like we just did. Um, when she tells them to go to the mountains, if you look at the geography, the mountains are to the west. But where did she send the pursuers from Jericho? She sent them to the east. So she said, go to the west, wait there three days. So they went three days. They were looking for them. They were looking all over for them. It's pretty easy to find someone in the plains. They couldn't find him because they were in the mountains. So they come back, and then they left. She did. She saved their lives, humanly speaking. Now, God's in control, and we know that God's, God saved their lives, but he used Rahab to do that. So she's saying, because I did this great thing for you, now can you do this something great for me? But is that how salvation works? It really isn't how salvation works. In fact, what we find then is that the, the, uh, 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 the nature of human beings is really just like this. In fact, by nature, man, talk about mankind, man wants to feel like he has earned salvation. Isn't that true? I mean, uh, when, when people, in fact, really, probably the biggest stumbling block when, when you try and present the gospel to people, the biggest stumbling block to people usually is that it's just too easy. It doesn't make sense. It's just too easy. What can I do to earn salvation? When you think of all of the other religions that exist in the world, they're about earning something, right? Every single one. We were in Costa Rica, and uh, around this time of year, um, every year, you'll have somewhere between two and three million people will walk from their homes to a basilica in, uh, in Cartago, where they will worship the little black statue of Mary. Um, it's a stone of Mary. And as they come through, they, the, the last stage, and they get to the... To the uh, uh, to the entrance of the basilica, they'll go on their knees, and uh, and people will walk for miles and miles. Sometimes, so some will actually walk from other countries, and they will walk to get there. 
And, and it's just amazing to see. Now, to give a little bit of perspective, there, the population in Costa Rica is about 4 million. So if you can imagine between 2 and 3 million there, present in that small town that weekend, it gives you an idea what it's like. I mean, they close the highways down, and it's, it looks like the, like the exit of Disney at closing time. It's just no lot for miles. Why? Because there's that sense of, I have to do something to earn something. And so they do all of this, and as they leave, guess who's there? Guess who's waiting for, it, for them to leave? People selling lottery tickets. <laughs> because there's this concept of, if I do this for God, then he's got to do something for me, right? And that's not how salvation works. That isn't how salvation works. And we see that, that tendency, uh, even, in, even in Rahab at the beginning. But what does the scripture say? It says, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith. Now, did Rahab have the faith? Yeah, we learned that last week. She feared God over man. She had faith, but it's still in her mind that wasn't enough. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works. Why? So that no one will boast. Not about what we can do. We can't earn or deserve salvation. It's a very different concept, what we find in Ephesians 2.8, than what we find in Rahab's mind, at least at the beginning of this story. And, um, and so what do we find happening? We find that she was basing this whole theory on reciprocation. I've done this for you. Will you do this for me? Um, the spies actually accept the deal, but they correct her theology. It's an interesting. The spies accept the deal, but they correct her theology. And they do so in the form of three exceptions. She asked for this, this pact between the spies and her. And they agree to it, but we find three exceptions. And really, the, these three exceptions will correct her theology as it comes to, to salvation. <coughs> Let's take a look at uh, uh, verse 17, verse 17 through 20, and we'll see all three of them. So the, the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless, so here's the first exception, unless we come into the land... You bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. So that's the first one. The second one, and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your, to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house um, into the street, his blood shall be on his own hand, head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. So there's the second exception. And the third one, and if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. So, she, so there's the third one, that they had to continue to fear God more than, than man and not give the information to Jericho. So we find these three exceptions, and really they're kind of clarifying what salvation is really about. Because the first one we find with the first exception is that salvation requires complete dependence upon sacrifice, not on anything that we can earn or deserve. It's completely on that. Let's take a look at the verse that, that, uh, that says that uh, in verse 17. Um, or I'm sorry, verse, uh, yeah, um, uh, verse 18. Unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. They're giving this, uh, this concept that really fits with Passover that no, unless you just submit to what God tells you to do and be covered by him, then, then we're free from, 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 this, uh, from this pact. 
Now you're probably wondering why in the world I have this picture up here right now. I want us to take just a step back and realize why in the world did God create a system where salvation is not based on the theory of reciprocation? Because when you think about it, reciprocation is by nature how we, we, we understand justice. And reciprocation is actually a good thing in most contexts. In fact, I heard my kids talking last night and, and uh, one of my daughters said to one of my other daughters, she said, I'll let you sit in the good seat while you watch your show under the condition that I get to sit in the seat in that, the better seat when, I, when it's my turn to watch my show. <laughs> and uh, it's the, why? It's that I'll do something for you, you do something for me. We call that being fair, right? So why is it so great when it comes to justice, but yet in salvation, God creates this system where we can't earn or deserve anything? Because earning and deserving things is really a great motivation for why we do a lot of good things, is it not? We told our, our, our kids for right here this week, we'd say, bring a visitor and you'll receive a prize. Right? You do something, we'll reward you for it. That's great. But why is it different when it comes to salvation? And if we take a step back and we, we look at the big picture of history, we realize that, that God in his heaven had, had created these beautiful creatures, capable creatures, doing incredible things, one of which uh, his name was Lucifer. And what happened to Lucifer? Oh yeah, he worked his way up in leadership, right? And here he is, and he said, I want to be like the Most High. I, mean, I don't want to have to submit to him. I want to be the Most High. And pride welled up in him, and, and to the point that God had to cast him out of heaven, if you can imagine that. And a third of the angels followed him that sink in for a second. A third of the angels followed Lucifer instead of God because it's their pride. And so God says, all right, I'm going to come up with a better system. Watch this. And he creates this system to repopulate heaven, but the entryway is humility. You cannot earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't do anything to boast about it, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. It's something you have to do by submitting yourself, humbling yourself, and just recognizing it's a gift. You have to receive it. Doesn't that make sense when you see the big picture? That's why God created it this way. That's why God uh, uh, did it this way. So I think it's important to, to understand that that's, that's why God says from beginning, to, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, I'll just share a few verses. You always see God resisting the proud and giving grace to whom? the humble. We see in Proverbs 3, surely he, and God in this context, scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. Or James 4, 6, but God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What we find time and time again is that that's what it's all about. In Luke 7, 36 through, through 47, we find the story of a woman who, who came to the feet of Jesus and she was involved in all, all sorts of things. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to read that story and see if it makes a little bit more sense because of what, we, what we're learning from Rahab's, from Rahab's life. I'm just going to read it. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Talk about Jesus. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears. And wiped them with her, the hair of her head. 
and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this. He spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who, um, who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but the woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You see what Jesus is getting at? Yeah, she has many sins. It's not about how many sins she has. She loves him much. Because she knows she's been forgiven much. Pharisee, proud of his works, proud of his obedience to the law. And Jesus is saying, you don't get it. You're clueless. You have no idea what salvation is really all about. Amen? Amen. So we find that salvation requires complete dependence upon the sacrifice not on anything that we can earn and deserve. And the last thing we, we, we find is that salvation is individually applied. Do you remember the second thing that Rahab asked for? Is that the, the escape from destruction would not be just for her, but for her family. But let's look at the second exception clause of the men uh, uh, of the spies in verses 18, really the second half of 18 and verse 19. Says the second, I'll be reading right in the middle of, of verse 18. And unless you bring your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household to your own home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house and into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. You see the idea that's coming up here? We see this concept of saying, you, know, you can't make a decision that's going to cover your family. Every person has to decide. If, the, if they decide to go outside, then they will die. If they decide to not come to your home, they will die. Why? Because they're not in a home marked with a scarlet cord. Um, uh, they cannot just say, well, my connection to Rahab is enough to save me. Every person has to do it individually. You know what? A lot of people think that about salvation. It, it would have been very easy for me. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad is a great man. My mom is a great woman. They love the Lord. My dad was a pastor. And it would be very easy for me to kind of ride the coattails of my father. Does that make sense? But in reality, when I stand before God, does anything good or righteous that my dad has done count in, in, for, for my benefit? Not at all. It's an individual thing. And so the men said, no, you can't just make this blanket statement for your family. But if they are willing to come in, and he, they actually go to the point to say, not just the family, anyone who comes in and is willing to come in and stay in your house, what's going to happen? They will be saved. They will be spared from the coming destruction. Salvation is something that is individually applied. The big question then for today is, did Rahab get it? Did she really understand it? 
And I would like to suggest that, that she did. She got it. How do we know? Look at the very next verse, Joshua 2, 21. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And what did she do? She bound the scarlet cord in the window. She got it. She thought it was going to be this idea of reciprocation. And she said, no, no, all it is, it's just the faith. You just, just do what we're asking you to do because it's an act of faith towards God. And she did that. And what we're going to find out is that she was spared for that. She did survive that. But, uh, but not only that, what I think is really cool is not only did she get it, but she was given a place of honor in God's eyes. She was given a place of honor. Two examples of how we can see that. One uh, comes in uh, Hebrews 11.31. Here we find the great hall of faith. And it's talking about the, uh, all these great men and women of faith from Genesis all the way through uh, Malachi. What do we find? Rahab. A harlot. Listed right alongside Abraham. Noah. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible. She's right in the same list. And what does it say? By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. But she had received the spies with peace. She did believe. She had faith. She got it. Not only that, I find something that's even more interesting to me. And you don't have to go there right now. Uh, but if, if, uh, if you were to look at Matthew chapter 1, and if you want to go there, you can. But um, uh, in Matthew chapter 1, we find the genealogy of Jesus. And, and we find that there are a few women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, which is very odd. Because usually genealogies, are just, they just include the men. It makes it a lot easier to just follow one line as opposed to complicating it. And, um, and so we find the genealogy, and it says the, the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. goes on in verse 3. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So it mentions that because of an act of faith. We won't go into that. And it really it gives her a place of honor, kind of a thumbs up in, in, this, in the story. We get ahead to verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz. By whom? By Rahab. We find Rahab in there. That's a, place, that's a place of honor. And Obed by Ruth. And so we find the third one in the same verse. Ruth, place of honor the genealogy of Jesus. Think about that. That God included her in the genealogy of Jesus. And I know what you might be saying, Pastor Dave, maybe, maybe they just threw some, some random females in the list or something like that. Uh, but no, this is, it's about honor because to mention someone's name in, in the genealogy is important. In fact, look what happens if we uh, skip ahead uh, to verse 6. It says, And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by Bathsheba? Is that what it says? No, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Won't even mention her name in the genealogy. Why? Because this is a thumbs down situation, right? She was not given a place of honor, and, uh, but yet Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and eventually Mary were given places of honor. I don't know about you, but that's an encouraging thought to see that God can take a harlot who is not even part of the people of Israel, and make her a part of Israel. Not only make her a part of Israel, but make her a special part in the line by which he was to preserve the Savior, Jesus Christ. Little did she know that that scarlet cord, that 
scarlet cord that she hung outside of her window represented one of her own descendants. God lifted her up. God lifted her up. It's not about how good she was. It's about who she sided with. It's about who she feared. You know, we, we humble ourselves and God lifts us up. Isn't that the way it works? But when we try to lift ourselves up, God resists the proud. Gives grace to the humble. What about you today? Are you depending on your works to get you to heaven? Usually when I ask someone, uh, whether it's in the street or wherever, if I ask someone uh, if they think that they're going to heaven and they say yes, and I ask them, well, why, would, why do you say? Well, if you were to stand before God and, and, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Uh, what would you say? And you know what? Nine times out of ten, the answer is always the same. And what is it? I'm pretty good, right? I, my good works kind of outweigh my bad works, uh, or whatever. And what does that show? The dependence is upon works. It's a theory of reciprocation. And guess what? That's natural. That's what Rahab thought, but the spies had to correct her. It has nothing to do with works. It has everything to do with complete dependence on the sacrifice, complete dependence on the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Nothing else. Secondly, are you prideful? Of your salvation? I mean, have you ever caught yourself saying, boy, or maybe not saying, but, uh, but thinking, boy, God is lucky to have me on his side. Whew, it's a good thing I got saved because look at what God can do with me. If, no, if, if that's you, then you don't get it. If you don't get it. If you think you, by, at any stretch that you are deserving any bit of heaven, then you just don't get it and you probably don't have it, right? It'll be time to do some real soul searching and, and, and consider that. Or how about this one? Do you look down on others because of their past sins? And it would be very easy to say, well, Rahab, she was a harlot, so let's just kind of, you know, consider the source here. Yeah, okay, she snuck in the back door uh, of heaven, but that's not the way God sees it. It has nothing to do with how bad our forgiven sins are. Amen? But, you know, people will come in and, and so, uh, into the church, and sometimes they carry scars from their past life, Right? And, and, and it's, it's difficult. And if we start looking at them and start putting them down in value because, because of their past, what does that tell us about how much we understand our own salvation? We don't get it. We don't get it. Because in God's eyes, forgiveness is as if it never happened. It's gone. Amen? And if we really understand the sinfulness of our own hearts, we would be really excited about it. And if we find ourselves proud, oh, I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there, then, then you don't get it. We should be saying, oh, I'm so glad it's that way, because if I got what I deserved, I'd be in a world of trouble. Or do you give up on people, assuming that they'll never get saved? Why? Because of how sinful you think they are. Think about it. In the story, Rahab, the harlot, it was probably the last person I would have thought that in Jericho was going to accept Jesus Christ, or, or not even accept Jesus Christ because you didn't know who he was yet, but in a sense he was accepting the, the faith in what uh, was a symbol of Jesus Christ, right? She was a harlot. Her job was to steal men away from their loyalty to their wives. But you know what? God took her and changed her. She actually became... Uh, 
uh, if you follow the genealogy, uh, the, the mother of some pretty important people. And apparently she raised well. But do we sometimes feel like, oh, well, that person, I'm not even going to share the gospel with that person because that person's just too far gone. I can tell by what, what their tattoo says or, or what their shirt says or what their language is like or what their political views are. or what it, Don't look at those things. If they're willing to humble themselves, then God, God will turn anyone into a hero. Amen? If you said yes to any of these, then you don't get it. And so today, before, before you leave, I want to make sure that you get it. And it's important that you, that you understand that salvation was offered as a free gift because God is using humility alone as the filter for populating his heaven, right? So the question is, will you humble yourselves today? You know, there's a, I'm going to end with a, just an example from the words of Jesus in Matthew 19. When he said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Any rich people ever entered the kingdom of heaven? Yes. Have any camels gone through the eye of a needle? Seems a little odd. So uh, I remember when we went to to, uh, to Israel, and our uh, our guide was a, an archaeologist, and he took us to this little wall where nobody goes and visits, and it was in this li- this little gate that goes straight into the temple where the sacrifices are made. And you know what the name of that gate is? The eye of the needle. And it really it opened up my eyes to a little bit of understanding of what Jesus was talking about because he said as rich people would come, they would come to the, the, to the closest gate. Uh, if they didn't, if they'd never been there before, they would come to the closest gate. They're getting ready to enter the, the temple where they can make sacrifices for their sins. But rich people came on camels. And camels would carry all of their stuff. Even when they're traveling, they would carry quite a bit. Why? Because it's a sense of pride. These are the things I've earned. I take them with me. I show how rich I am by the things that I carry with me. Can a camel make it through the eye of a needle? Yes, it can, but it has to take everything else off. Everything else off. If you're carrying anything else, anything, any resemblance of pride, you don't get it. It's not about that. You have to be like the rich man who says, I'll leave my possessions behind because I'm doing something more important. I'm stripping myself of all of those things because I'm going to enter through this small gate so I can accept the sacrifices for my sins. Usually what the rich people would do is they would go around, they would find a different gate where they could fit, the, fit their camels and try and work their way back to the temple doing that. And, and I'm telling you, there is no other gate in salvation. It is the only way. Uh, let's, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And, and in a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. But when we sing, I just want... Say, if the Lord's talking to you and saying, you know what, maybe the faith that you've had up to this point has not been real, your faith has been misplaced or prideful, and you want to know today for sure that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else, then I'm going to stay up here today. I'm not going to go back to my seat. I'm going to stay up, uh, up, up here in the front today, and I want you to come and talk to me. And if more than one or two or three people come and talk to me, I'll, I'll, I'll send you to someone who can show you from Scripture so you don't have to leave today without knowing that you have eternal life. Also, I would like to make an invitation to those of you who you know you're saved. You've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior.
but you've allowed some of that pride to creep back in. And maybe the way you've looked at others has shown that kind of pride in your own life. Or maybe the Lord has just laid someone on your heart that you have not witnessed to to this point because you, you've just kind of felt like, well, that person's never going to get saved anyway. But the Lord's been telling you, impressing you to witness to that person. Then I'm going to ask you to come up to the, to the front. If you can take any place along the front and just pray to God and confess that to God and say, Lord, I commit today to do what you're telling me to do. We won't interrupt you. We won't bother you. You can do it from your seat if you like as well, but do what it takes to make this decision real in your own heart. Because this is, there's nothing more important than dealing with salvation. And that's what I pray for. for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone in here who does not know you personally, maybe they've been trusting in their good works or trusting in their religious activity or trusting in the fact that they were from a Christian home, whatever it might be, Lord, may we strip ourselves today of all of those things and enter through the eye of the needle. Humble ourselves and depend wholly on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Lord, if there are those who have done that and pride has crept back into our lives, I just pray, Lord, that you would give us new eyes to see not people like the Pharisee who called the woman a sinner, but to see the heroes that you've created out of sinners and have a love for everyone because of what you've done for them, not because of what they've earned or deserved. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name.